Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right. Hello, everyone. This is the Petronauts Podcast. This is episode 34 of the Petronauts Podcast, and I have a fantastic um, guest for you here today, which I will introduce. This is Dan Pickering. Uh, but before we get started, it is Friday, November 19th, 2021, and I really do like to put timestamps with these uh, podcasts with oil prices because, holy crap, they've had a nice backsliding in the last few days um, and really today. So WTI is 76.10, Brent is 78.72, and Nat Gas is 508. I did see that hit a forehandle last night. Um, so prices are all over the place. And we are, I, I, I can't help but talk about uh, oil prices and OPEC and the trajectory and why things are moving. So definitely want to talk about that. But we're going to cover a number of things because Dan Pickering is a wealth of knowledge um, and a leader in this space. Um, he is the chief investment officer of Pickering Energy Partners. Um, and most a lot of folks are familiar with that. Um, but I'm happy to let him discuss a little bit more about what Pickering, you know, 30 second intro on what Pickering Energy Partners is. And, um, but this is a podcast full of Intel and, and Dan has made, um, I, I came across him on a, on Clubhouse and a, some stuff with Chuck Gates and the Clubhouse with Chuck Gates over the summer. And so we've interacted on a, a number of forums, but haven't really got to just sit down and nerd out. So that's what this podcast is about. So with that, uh, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Glad to be here, Tricia. Thanks. I'm ready to nerd out. Awesome. Awesome. That is, that is the um, answer I liked here. So would you like, th- would you like to, 30 seconds to tell folks about uh, Pickering Energy Partners? Sure. So Pickering Energy Partners, we uh, are a, kind of an investor and an advisor around the energy space. So we've got an investments business, public and private, putting money in companies uh, in the energy space, both traditional energy and energy transition. We've got a consulting business that that has done a lot in the ESG area with energy companies as well as regular way energy. We've got an insights business. David Heikinen, uh runs that business where we're working on, uh, you know, market intelligence around companies and, and energy macro. And then we've got an advisory business where we're helping raise money for companies. So uh, everything has a traditional energy bent that's also expanding into the energy transition. And I have to finish by saying I'm on podcast number 34 of Petro Nerds, and my high school basketball jersey number was 34. So this is going to be a great hour. It really is going to be a great hour. And that's awesome. I appreciate that. And that's a great intro. It's also cool because the more guests we've had, um, a lot of us are cross-pollinating in these same spaces. Obviously, I don't have a private equity fund or investment fund, um, but we're doing a lot of the same stuff. And I think it's great because the market is, um, it's a bit crazy right now. And, um, you know, I do a lot of advising stuff for clients and working with clients and uh, doing a lot of quarterly reviews. And, you know, those are tending to be like monthly reviews and now becoming weekly phone calls because, you know, these uh, market changes are, are, are kind of crazy. So happening fast. Um, it's happening fast. And so there's a number of things going on. I, the last podcast I did with David Ramsawood and with, you know, the previous ones with Mark Rosano, I talked a lot about inflation because I'm a bit obsessed with it and obsessed with inflation and high oil prices. And we can start there of the fact that, you know, prices don't seem that high today and get, given that they are, have, you know, yesterday, last night they were backsliding five bucks. So, I mean, a couple things, I and, and I would love your take on this, but really, um, market sentiment has a lot to do with it. Um, and I was in a bit of a Twitter banter with um, Energy Credit One um, a couple days ago on 
you know, the role of the administration and sentiment really, I think, in, in uh, energy prices and what they can do. And I think it's interesting that um, everyone said, you know, folks on Twitter were saying, well, we can't, the administration can't do much to actually cool energy prices um, in terms of production and everything. But market signaling has a lot to do with, um, I say, $5 on upside and downside. Traders move oil prices five bucks either way pretty, pretty fast. And it seems to me that one, there's a there's a couple things going on. Is that COVID scares are are ramping up? So Austria, you know, Germany is, is closing down places. You know, they're shutting down hol- Christmas markets, which is a big deal in Germany. And then Australia is looking at a, you know, that's been going on a long time. But Australia just like it was coming out of it, and now they're going lockdown again, and now they're doing uh, vaccine mandates. These are pretty big deals for you know potential oil, de- you know, oil demand. And then, um, and I think that's more jitters and fears of you know in as opposed to what are the actual volumes. And then we have, um, you know, Biden basically moving the needle a little bit with, with Xi Jinping and saying, hey, we're going to, we're looking to um, get China to release some of their strategic petroleum reserves. Now, whether or not they actually do that is unclear. The volumes are unclear, but oil prices slipped two bucks immediately, went from, you know, 80 to 78 immediately when we heard that China may release some strategic petroleum reserves. And it sounds like uh, India may, there's no, no clarity on that as well, but it sounds like India may release it as well. And so if you put that together with the U.S. might release some strategic petroleum reserves, um, China might and India might, that's enough to actually for traders, I think, to pull down prices. And then you have all these COVID fears of, pack that together and it's a Friday and people just want to sell off a little bit. That's, that's my take um, in a nutshell. Uh, you said a lot of the same things that I had written down here when, when you mentioned the word inflation. I mean, let's take one step back, which is, I think we are an inflationary environment in general. Um, you know, there's the big debate about transitory versus persistent. Um, you know, certainly as supply chains start to moderate, and, or improve, I think we'll see availability of goods and services improve. Uh, but you know, wages are wages are a big component of costs, and they're going up. And when they go up, they don't go back down. You don't bump somebody's pay and then take it away next year. And exactly, exactly. Which is why, that. yeah, which is yeah, why the word transitory is a little bit BS. Uh, it's tough. Yeah, it's it's tough. So I think there's a, an inflationary environment, as there ought to be given all the money that everyone in the world has printed. So, you know, the bias is for, you know, they're trying to, to support economies, but you create inflation. And the question is, do you overinflate? And I still think the risk is more on that front than, than the transitory front. And then play that into commodities. And you've got, you've got an environment where, you know, COVID kind of screwed everything up, if you will, from a demand perspective, but as that demand comes back and normalizes, you know, we've had a supply response in, in the U.S. that isn't going to change quickly. So I think you're right. Near-term commodity prices today, my view was it was more COVID than, than SPR releases from 83 to 78 or 9. I think it was, it was SPR and, and today it was COVID and I get it. That makes sense. It's, the front month represents near-term supply demand, and that's a that's a scary issue. So, and then you've got some profits today. I mean, we've had a big run up here in crude, and so can you take three or four bucks? I mean, it's still a good price. So, I don't think we've necessarily changed the fundamental dynamic. Other than, if anything, if we get this coordinated reserve release, I mean, OPEC's going to be even more probably disciplined or adamant about coming back slowly because 
because you've got this other other kind of geopolitical element that's come into play. So I'm I, I think the one other thing that has entered the equation in the last probably month has been this concept that that the market gets sloppy next year on a supply demand basis. And so maybe oil prices were ahead of themselves looking into this imbalance. I, I kind of think the market's going to be perceived as tighter than it is, even if we, you know, we see a little sloppiness next year. So I'm, I've been in the camp that said we're probably biased to go to a hundred faster than we are more likely to go to hundred than 60. And I'm still in that camp. Yeah, so I, I think you're right there. I don't I, I don't disagree that that's where the market's going and that's where traders and sentiment are taking it. I don't think the market's as I don't think the market's as tight or it wouldn't move this way. Like some it's interesting that it, it moves so quickly one side or the other. Um but if the market was as tight as people say it was and it was gonna re- like end these two hundred dollar calls or Bank of America one twenty five it would already be closer to 100. I yeah. just really think, I mean, so it's not, the fundamentals just aren't there. And the problem is we have to do look backs on actual supply and demand. You know, we have to to really see global supply and demand. We know the U.S. and the U.S. like last week, this, I mean, this week, our data for demand was great. I mean, we had, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, right? In October, when we had a little bit of a couple dollar pullback and you had some, you actually had some service companies have their earnings calls that day and they lost a, a couple bucks on those calls because, prices dropped. And that was really, I mean, that was a, we had uh, a stock build in crude inventories, um, two week, you know, double week over week, we had a stock build in crude inventories and we had slightly soft demand in the other oils category, which includes jet fuel. Um, but this week was great. Uh, gasoline was up, diesel was up, everything was up, jet fuel, other oils, uh, everything was looking good. So demand in the U S you do have line of sight on that. I think that, you know, and we, I agree that OPEC is going to be more disciplined. I mean, we're, you can't you can't ask these guys to uh, to add barrels to the market and, and create volatility. And um, you know, I'm not in a huge defense of every single player in OPEC, but um, this is how business is done. And you, you can't just add barrels in and, and then just hope it, volatility is a problem. And so, if they were to add a, a bunch of barrels back without ha- really having clarity on the market, and I mean, they've been saying for a while that the second half of the year of 2022 might look a little softer. And IEA has also said that, so that helped with prices. This week is that IEA has said, hey, things are tight now, but they're going to get softer in the second half of next year. I really do think that next year looks different because I think that inflation bites and I think economic growth, when I'm looking around the world for a nice picture for to tell me why things are going to look great, there isn't a whole lot. Um, pent up demand only lasts so long. And um, I mean, it's it's great that people want to get out. Um, I, I don't I don't think the COVID shutdown thing is going to play well in the U.S. if it if they try to play the Austria and Australia cards here, I think people will absolutely push back um, because they're they've fed up to the eyeballs with it. Um, so I think that's going to be a different story um, across the globe. So we'll see how that plays out with with oil demand and how that's how how the market responds to it. But in terms of economic growth, I'm just concerned that you know retail sales look good in the U.S. Um, recent retail sales, but I'm one of those people that hey, I'm get the stuff for Christmas now. You're worried you're not going to get it in time for Christmas, so buy it now. And by the way. We didn't see everybody for Christmas last year. We're making up for it this year. Doesn't mean the health of the consumer is going is doing that great. I, I think uh, Mark Rosano has commented on these payday loans and different things. I, I personally don't think people are in that great a position. I think they've banked on um, the fiscal side a little too much, and I think the cushion um, the cushion for a lot of consumers might not quite be there. And so I think the second you know next year could look a little bit different um, than it looks now. And so there might be a false sense of security with the with the retail sales in the U.S consumer. And we are certainly seeing weaker than expected. I mean, 
they they had revised their uh, retail sales down in China, so they didn't look that bad. But holy crap, Alibaba got smashed last night. Um, and that one, Alibaba saw weaker than expected sales, um, so that wasn't good. They've also been really heavily hit by the um, by the the regulatory crackdowns within China. Um, so there was a there's a number of things going on there, but that showed some serious weakness that I think people people need to realize. So those um, and those inflationary pressures, the fact that we're just sort of disregarding them in these retail sales, and folks think the U.S. consumer is okay. That, that might be a little bit of a false sense of security. So I am concerned about that in terms of how next year looks. And I do think all of this 6.2% um, in inflation, even if that was to start coming off, those wages don't decline immediately. And it means folks like me, that's a small business, um, struggle. If I want to grow and add people, it's going to be hard for me to add people because I can't find them and I can't, I can't pay them enough to get them to get them here. So I think that's all. Um, those are headwinds, not uh, tailwinds for the U.S. economy. Yeah, I, whether it's 20, it's a big difference if it's 22 or 23 or 24, right? I mean, we, we the, 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 it, I continue to grapple with just this concept of, of where all the money goes. And um, at some point, the combination of having to pay back this money a la higher taxes um, and a week a dollar and things like that. Right now, the dollar's strengthening. So, you know, you've got a number of different dynamics at play. Um, can I, we just can, can hone in that for a second? Because I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Because a number I just recently heard, and it was the combined figure, it was the $26 trillion has been injected into the global economy since March of 2020, including monetary and fiscal side. So we've our, you know, our M1 money supply is ridiculous. I and mean, we put trillions and trillions of dollars into the system. And, and we do seem to be, you know, spending like, uh, you know, like drunken sailors um, uh, in the White House and on the Hill of, of passing everything. If it's got a trillion, no, it even blinks an eye. And I think it's getting a little bit scary because it does have to be paid back. And so there's a fiscal side that's important to this that combined with the monetary side, if there's just a lot of money sloshing around in the system and, um, and this dollar and the Fed, the role of the Fed, um, doing or not doing anything, and and folks, it seems like when I stay up late and I'm listening to the market, whether it's CNBC World or it's Bloomberg, and you're listening to all these pundits that pop in, the the one the concerns of inflation are they strengthen every day and every night. Um, I've been banging on my podcast since the beginning of this year that it's very very real, and month over month inflation is here, which the Fed said it wasn't, um, and that, that but that's what we need to be concerned about. Now we really have month over month inflation. We have six point two percent inflation, but this the stronger dollar is sort of like, well, maybe if the Fed chair, if, if Biden keeps Jerome Powell in place as the Fed chair and he's less, he's more hawkish, which I don't think he's a hawk at all, but he's more hawkish than the all, other alternative. I mean, there's a lot of stuff and, you know, the, the dollar's looking good because, I mean, what people think that the, the Fed will be forced to because inflation's so bad that the Fed will be forced. And it's interesting because when you listen to all these analysts stuff on TV, basically they say, no, it's fine. You know, the market's going to be fine. It's going to keep going up and up. And, you know, the Fed is going to continue to be dovish. And I just thought, you know, history doesn't tell us that. History tells us that when your hand's forced, you have to react. And what if inflation goes to 10%? And, you, you know, I mean, it, what if inflation goes to 10% and some of these fiscal things roll back and we find out that the consumer isn't that healthy? I think things are being a little bit jaded here. And so I'm just curious, is that what's, what, you, what do you think is driving that strength in the dollar? And what are your, what's your interpretation of these, these Fed things, just from, a, just from a risk standpoint, not necessarily from a political standpoint? Yeah, we're, I think we got a stronger dollar because our, our rate picture, you know, one, our economy looks, I think, pretty decent. And two, you've got 
uh, a view that U.S. rates are moving higher. So I think that's feeding part of the dollar strength. I mean, it's, it's all related, obviously. I, let me give you two stories. So in terms of how I think about this, one is you're right. When this ends, it probably doesn't end with a 4% pullback in U.S. equity markets. It's going to be much more challenging than that when it ends. Um, and we're going to look back and we're going to look at Dogecoin and NFTs and Michael Jordan shoes selling for a million four. And I just saw a blurb that Ken Griffin bought the U.S. Constitution for $42 million or whatever. Um, all of these things are signs of people look, you know, stretching for places to put money to work. And, and we're going to look back at the valuation of Tesla and a bunch of other companies and say it was so obvious that this couldn't last now. So that's story number one is that's that will be the uh, it was obvious. Many of us are saying this now and have been saying this all year. So, yeah. yes. OK. And, and so that leads to my second story, which is when I started at Fidelity as a young analyst out of business school, um, we were looking at the time. The great thing about Fidelity is there's so much information and, and everybody's deep and everything. And and a guy came in and one of my fellow early analysts came in and said, was, look at this. And it was consumer debt. Like, look at how much debt the consumer has. This can't last. It's going to kill us. So that was 1994. And in 2008, we had a crisis around too much consumer debt and the housing crisis and all that. So my point is, some of these things that seem obvious can take lots longer to play out than we expect. And so I don't know, I don't know if we've actually had the whoosh that tends to 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 be the end, right? If you think back to 2001 and the tech bubble, um, have we had that tech bubble moment where, you know, Sky Mall triples in a day because they say they're going to add an internet presence? I don't know that we've had that yet. And I, I don't know that it happens with oil at 70, but it might happen with oil at 110. Um, I don't know if it happens with interest rates going from 150 basis points to 190 basis points, or if it's got to be 350 basis points, I don't know. And so that's why I think this timing is really tough because everything that you said about very, inflation very could kill us and it might be three more years. And if it's three more years, they will be three more great years because that's how these expansions end is, you know, oh, everybody's got a pilot and there's so much money looking for a home still and, and meme stocks, right? All these people have money in their they're plowing it into weird stuff, including equities. And so I, I think there's more gas in the tank is, is, is where I'm at. I think that there could be, there could be more gas in the tank. I think the next few months are really critical and winter, but I still want to think when you say, so when you think the, so this bullishness and, and timing is everything, right? I mean, I've been a perma bear on China for a long time. Um, you know, there's a different thing there, though, because they can mask the data and they certainly uh -huh. are. And that's uh -huh. a, a big problem that people are having now is that, you know, the data is always there. So we, we, like you said, 1994 to 2008, the data was there. People just didn't want to look at it. And the data is here right now. These valuations are too high. Personally, I mean, I've been wanting to, you know, I, I have a small amount of savings. Do I want to invest in it? I don't not right now. Um, the market looks way too damn frothy and people, you know, what the, you know, Edward Jones and stuff tell me is like, well, put, keep putting them, you know, putting the money in and it's good. And I thought, you know, actually, I know I I've, I'm, I'm overly cautious, but it's like, 
now why not wait a couple months? If you've already waited a little bit, just watch the winter because the winter is, look, if the if the weather's really cold in Europe or the weather's really cold in Asia or just one of them or slightly colder than it needs to be and there's an energy cri- a worse energy crisis than we have now, I think that the straw, it could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And the fact that in Europe, you know, the fact that globally people are criticizing, you know, the Fed, our Fed for not raising, or they're raising rates, right? People are assuming that the, the Australian bank is going to have to turn tail and actually raise rates, even though they said they wouldn't. Um, people are, New Zealand's going to raise rates. Um, it's expected that, that uh, the Bank of England's going to raise rates. So why is it okay that all these other countries can raise rates, regardless of what in, caused the inflation, but they're going to address it? But it's not okay that the U.S., for, for us, for the U.S., it's, it's not okay. We have to address maximum employment, which is fundamentally changed and we're already dropping employment like live but yet we've just we're refusing to one uh do qe faster um and so we're not we're not pulling off the quantitative easing faster and people are likening this to previous times with qe and saying the four percent correction well holy crap the quantitative easing we had before was like a drop in the bucket compared to what this is you Uh know so we're talking about these 120 billion we're still putting extra money into the economy each month whilst we have this 26 trillion so when people want to know well, why is everyone not back to work? There's still a fiscal stimulus lag. I mean, do you still have money out there? And you've got, you still have all this money. So things look, I think for the, things look too good, right? The market's still going up and things look good. And it's that, it's the black swan is never that thing that we all know. It's like, what's that little thing? And people keep saying, well, it's not the Evergrande. Evergrande is not Lehman Brothers. And it's like, okay, maybe Evergrande isn't the Lehman Brothers, but their property sector is going to hell in a handbasket and they're just covering it up every day, you know, um, you know, putting some, some straw over all that horse crap because it's not, it doesn't look very good. And, um, I'm trying not to cuss because I, I found, uh, I have to give a shout out. I, I was at the ACE scholarship luncheon, um, Ooh. last week and Jay Leno talked and, and, you know, the room's packed, people are donating lots of money. And it's great. And a, a guy comes up to me and says, I got to introduce you to my wife. And I was like, well, I, I need to know who you are as well. I mean, and he says, Oh, I'm, uh, Tappan Southern. I work for I work for Liberty. Um, I work for Liberty Resources, and this is my wife, and uh, she listens to your podcast, and we all listen to your podcast, and so and our children listen to your podcast. So I realize I have to stop cussing um, if children are listening to this. But anyways, I diverge. That being said, we have this uh, we have this perception of the Fed, and you mentioned this. So do you think that that people are baking in, we're going to have these rate hikes. But right now, every time the Fed comes out and says, it's like, nope, we're going to do the QE till, you know, June, June of next year. And then they'll start doing two rate hikes. And the market seems to be comfortable with these two rate hikes. Some people are baking like, and but others are saying, nope, it's not going to happen until 2023. And I think, I guess where inflation is and where the market's interpreting it is we're definitely going to have some rate hikes next year. So is that, is that the real, and is that how you guys are thinking about it? Um, And, but those are small rate hikes. So that's not going to like, go crazy with the economy? Um, I think, so we're a little bit outside of my area of expertise. Obviously I'm an energy guy, not a interest rates guy. I think that, that the Fed and the world are playing this fine line between allowing things to overheat, protecting things from blowing up and and in the meantime, you've got what they're signaling, and then you've got what the markets are actually doing, right? And so, um, and so, I think it's going to be hard to raise rates too much because you got a lot of debt to pay, and and all of a sudden that really gets problematic. And 
and you've got a population that's got a lot of debt to pay as well. And so that gets problematic for them, you know, housing and other variable rate stuff. So, um, so I think rates, rates are going up. They probably have to go up enough to kill the economy. I mean, right, if you think about cycles, we save things. So that troughed it, which means the next move, we're between here and a top. I don't know where that top is exactly, but you probably raise rates until it happens. And the question is, will one or two do it or take more? And 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 then everybody's trying to gain this timing, which which I don't have a clue about. I think the one and the one comfort for me as an energy guy is that. Don't worry, I don't I'm have to, bringing this back to energy. There's a reason I've got you going on all this. Yeah, stuff. well, I, I was going to say energy. if if. Um, if we have an inflationary environment, energy is probably a winner, both absolute and relative. And, and if, if rates don't go up much and the economy is good and demand grows, we probably win as well. And so it's, it's hard for me in the near term not to see another leg higher for either the commodity or for energy stocks or both. And then you got to worry a lot because we now, you know, COVID showed us when demand rolls over, it's really sucky and you want to own nothing and you want to be gone from this sector. And so uh, I think what we have in the energy sector is we're playing this, we're, we're playing the, the, there's got to be another up move probably. And then you don't want to overstay your welcome. So you're kind of worried about the next downturn and it's not like stocks are on their trough values anymore. I, I mean, I, they've gone up a lot. I think they can go up a lot more, but you're going to have to be, you're going to have to pay more attention. I think when oil was 45 and stock prices were half of where they are today, you just had to believe at some point in time, the world would get better. I mean, I wrote a lot about you're getting paid to wait. You can just, you know, if you own stuff that's not going broke, you're going to make money. Well, we've made some of that money. Now, now you've got to be more focused, I think. Yeah. So, but that's particularly to the oil equity space, which is a great, um, very nicely done with your transition here and bringing best back to me. And there's a point in this. And I think that's because you've, uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, we clicked record. Um, the a couple of introductions I had to you was when I, when I, I saw you on CNBC talking to Kelly Evans uh -huh. about this, about some of the green stuff. And I do want to talk about that. And I'm very, I have been honest and very vocal, you know, and I was a little bit, I was a little, I wouldn't say I've, I'm very open-minded. I'm happy to change my opinion and alter it. Um, and that's the only way you can be with data coming in and, and helping clients. But um, I'm not nearly as bullish on or as, as open-minded on the bullish side of green tech um, as I, you know, toward the beginning of this year, because I do think the interest rates um, and the environment are changing the dynamics. Now, if, if to what you just played out, if it's a very slow roll on those interest rates, that helps, that helps tech, that helps green tech, that helps everything. But I think we've got sort of a very mixed nuanced picture in the world of sort of this green tech and ESG and everything and, and, and oil and gas. And when you're talking about you know, U.S. oil, when you're talking about oil equities, um, that's a tough spot for them to be in because they're also trying to invest, right? And they have lots of pressures being, you know, I, I talk about this ESG monkey on their back and I think it's, you know, the size of that monkey, depending on the company, it's 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 a mess because they don't even know what to do necessarily. It's that monkey whacking them over the head. Um, and it's not like, hey, just invest in this or just do this and everything will be fine. Um, and so I think you have those pressures and then it's also like you're an oil company and your job is 
you're making money by producing oil and gas and oil prices are high. So that's what you're supposed to be doing. And then on the back of that, you have, um, I mean, you actually have the president of the United States saying that, uh, you know, calling going to the FTC this week and saying um, there's a get, you know, there's a, a difference in prices. Um, you know, even if, if oil prices have went, went up or down, there's a difference at the pump. And he didn't call out, uh, he didn't call it refineries and he didn't call it uh, retailers and he didn't call it convenience stores. He actually called out oil companies for making a lot of profit and hurting the U.S. consumer. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of factors going in from a, a pressure standpoint, but these oil companies, if you're saying this is a short term, this is a short term thing where things are going to be okay and you got to navigate it. It's not like they're just going to go back and say, oh my gosh, things are great. Let's go invest, you know, for tomorrow. And, and I think it's, it's a much different picture for these oil and gas companies to sort of invest. And then that's where you start looking at, do we have a shortfall of investment, um, for oil and gas for the actual oil production that we need? And that's, that's a whole separate thing, but just this oil equity space. I mean, you've painted a, I, I, and I, I, I tend to agree with that or, or that, I mean, they prop, they're in a, they're in a kind of a tight window of the things that they have to do. And I think the pressures on them are pretty significant, but you also have, I mean, you Pickering energy partners, you guys are looking at a broad swath of stuff. You've put out this, uh, great title of your report, by the way, um, which I'm not sure I'm supposed to have. Le- it was leaked to me. I'll just going to say you sent it to me. Uh, this Inconvenient inconvenient Truths, is that what it's called? Uh-huh. That's yeah. right. So, um, inconvenient Truths Report, which I thought echoed a little bit of the, um, you know, the Barclays, Wallclub, Smeal thing that came out earlier this spring, you know, just talking about the difficulties of, of how hard it's going to be to actually transition. Um, and I think you point out in that Inconvenient Truths, some of the stuff going on in the UK um, and just this energy crisis and, and some of these realities. So, uh, you know, with all that, given the, the hard things of the actual transition, given that the fact that, you know, it's tricky for oil companies, they have a narrow window in which they're doing stuff with an equity market. Um, but also that you just, that you said that, Hey, interest rates might not be that high. So that, that bodes well for tech and, and, and green tech. That just seems like it's like, everything a little bit too good to be true there. Like, how does that play out? You know, is that you can have all the green you want and ESG you want and all the oil and gas. It just seems like it's a little bit messier. And and I think green tech and, and tech in general, but I think green tech has had uh, a, uh, it's it's day in the sun this year, especially with um you know with the with the tailwinds from the administration and the political endorsement. Um, and then there's just a check on reality of how much this stuff costs and the fact that it doesn't give you as good a returns. And that does make me concerned when we have activist investors going to Exxon and going to Chevron and having them put 10% of their capex into this stuff that's not going to give them the same returns as oil and gas. Wow. There was a Sorry, lot that's there. a long rant. Yep, that yep. was Pick, there was a lot there. So let me say a couple. Pick your things. favorite and run with it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me say a couple things around this. Um, so I wanna I wanna distinguish between the the attractiveness of equities and the allocation of capital because what I think is is pretty clear. Uh, I think a couple things are clear from my perspective, but are muddied in the minds of investors. So when we think about energy transition, I think that investors would like to decarbonize, sorry, there are a lot of constituents, investors are one, institutional investors, um, I think governments, I think lots of individuals, and I think lots of corporations would like to see carbon out of the system really, really quick. We're good. So, so lots of people would like things to happen really fast 
in Europe, they push really fast to get to renewables and lower carbon. And what we've seen in Europe is that going fast creates volatility and the risk of high price. It's expensive and it's volatile. And that that's really probably not what anybody wants ultimately, but that's kind of the outcome of going fast to, to decarbonize. So I think that I think that we're just at the beginning of people allocating real significant capital to decarbonization. So the money's coming. My personal view is that that it will take much longer to affect the change that people want. And and so in the meantime, what do you do? You use the stuff you've got. And so, you know, you literally have people talking out of both sides of their mouth. Biden says, I want, you know, green, I want green everything. And oh, by the way, OPEC print, print more oil, produce more oil. And so there's the short term and the long term. And I think the wake up call this year, particularly this summer with all the stuff going on in the gas markets, is that that the time period we're going to have to do both is going to be pretty long. And so we're going to need the bad guys for the foreseeable future. And and so so I think that the pace of the energy transition is overestimated which means hydrocarbons are going to stick around and probably wind up being more highly priced than they otherwise would because this overhang is big. Man, if you're a deep water oil producer, you've got a project that you're going to turn on in 2028 and it runs for 20 years. I mean, that's how much money do you want to spend on that project? So so we've got an overhang that's creating this underinvestment in oil and gas probably ultimately supporting a tighter supply demand balance for hydrocarbons and therefore a tighter price. And then you look at, so, so I think that there's a ton of activity and a ton of dollars going to be spent on green tech, energy transition, ESG related stuff, whatever you want to call it. I call it decarbonization. It's going to be many new technologies and many existing technologies and a bunch of it's going to get wasted. A bunch of it's going to get very low returns. I mean, I agree with you. BP buying windmills at a five cap is awful. Doesn't make me want to own BP stock, but it doesn't mean BP and BP is buying those windmills. So there's low return for a bunch of the capital. And then there's going to be something. I don't know what it is yet. There are going to be some huge companies that come out of this process because if we're going to take, you know, if we're going to go to net zero in the next 50 years, not 30, that's going to be a massive industry. And so somebody's going to be the carbon capture guru and somebody's going to have the widget that that takes, you know, carbon out of the the smokestacks or what, whatever it is. So um, so I don't know that I love a lot of the areas that capital is being deployed in decarbonization, but I think the money's going there. So I think that's a huge tailwind and the the sort of backside beneficiary of that are the oil and gas companies because folks are folks are poo-pooing them but they're very necessary and i think there has been underinvestment i think the oil markets are tight we're going to be tighter over the next 10 years than we otherwise would have been because some money's not going to get spent because people are scared of what might happen so
again, I think that just, it gives me some, some comfort around my, one of the things I say right now is I'd much rather buy an oil well than a windmill. Mm-hmm. I think windmills are, we're going to build more windmills. They're going to be a very popular investment, but at an unattractive return. Meanwhile, you've got this investment in oil wells that people aren't excited about making, where I think the returns are quite good. And so if you can get past the philosophical pieces of the argument around decarbonization, then um, I think you make a lot of money. And so uh, I think so you make more money. At- you're, you're painting, a, and you say some amazing things. I only want to interject because I want to ask. Please. You're painting a very clear uh, picture that's very positive. Both, I mean, it's a little, in my opinion, it's a little too good to be true. I mean, you're painting a very positive picture of like you can have it all. You can you can invest in. It's gonna. You're basically saying it's gonna look different than it does today in terms of decarbonizing, but that a lot of money is gonna go to decarbonizing. Um, so there'll be, you know, that's an investment opportunity, and that, um, but it makes oil and gas look good from from money standpoint, not from necessarily an equity standpoint because they may still be hammered. But that right now there's there's uh, so much uncertainty. I, what I think's fascinating is that that there's this massive uncertainty in the oil space where people are scared and don't want to invest, um, but they know they, we know we need it. And I think um, I'm hearing more and more, and you alluded to this when you were talking with, with Chuck Yates on in Clubhouse over the summer, when it, Chuck said that his son, you know, was very anti-oil and gas and, and he just was losing his sort of faith that, you know, people were going to understand that we need this stuff. And, and you said, no, well, there was actually kind of a, a reverse already happening within people's portfolios and, or some advising of switching over. And I had heard and seen, I bet I'd, heard and been seeing really the same thing for the past probably month around then over the summer when you started having, you know, folks say they're they're and they would say it scaredly, but they would get on TV at two in the morning on Bloomberg and they would say, hey, you know, we don't love it, but we are starting to advise our clients, given this inflationary environment, to move a little more into oil. And they're like, oh, that's so bad. It's it's oil. And but I mean, that's what they're doing. So it's a reality of that. It was sort of already happening then. Um the having your cake and sort of eating it too, though, in that the money is going here. And I guess this is why we're both going to have jobs for a long time is that, you know, it's, 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 it's not, a, no one has the answer, right? There's no crystal ball of like, how do you invest in the green space and make money right now? And how do you invest in OS space exactly and make money? And I think they're going to continue to evolve. I, I am, I think that if interest rates though, go higher than expected, and we have some, even if it's a, 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 a muted bulker response, Green, a lot of green stuff gets hurt real fast. Um, I think that the politicians the, the, who are hold on, let me interject. I yeah, I agree. Do. I mean the, the yeah, long term, and you can see it in the in the regular way tech sector when interest rates start running. When you've got these massive multiples, higher rates hurt them, and, and green tech is no different. But but what I want to say is we're talking about. I think that that the money is coming into the green sector almost regardless of the near term return outlook and so you sort of so i think i think you may stop people making money on it but you're probably not going to stop them trying to put more capital in there so those windmills are going to get built at whether it's a 4 cap or an 8 cap uh, guys want to build those windmills so 
Do you think that the so do you think I mean right now though and I there's a number of things that went here but right now wind and solar those are the two biggest things right they're the easiest things that they're basically all the only real tech here so when people get all excited about the fancy newfangled tech it's basically wind and solar which has been around for a very very long time it's not that new and almost all of that is coming from China almost all of it so um, I don't see how it is as sustainable as people think it is um, get, with this administration in place turning a blind eye to the human rights abuses in China, I can see that it's sustainable, that we'll continue on that path. And I can see why China would continue to say, let's cooperate in the area. I can't see it with an, a different um, politically, it, if political environments change, I think it could be it could be difficult for us to buy, you know, the third largest wind manufacturer or, or turbine manufacturer for onshore is Xinjiang Goldwind in Xinjiang. Um, and, uh, you know, we know that 70 percent of the world's solar panels are coming from China. Forty five percent of those are coming from the province of Xinjiang. So and we know that that labor is cheap because it's probably forced labor. So that's not a sustainable one. You're just assuming that we'll, we'll keep buying it from forced labor or the world will, and maybe they will, which is not a good thing. And I'm very, very much against that. But I guess the only way it's really sustainable in the long term to me beyond a political, and I do think politicians uh, in Europe and in the US have had a massive outsized role in how people view the energy transition right now and green tech. And I think it skewed uh, people's vantage points of this significantly. But I'm not, I just don't think that's sustainable. I don't think that you can, uh, you know, have the, the serious human rights violations within China and continue to purchase these. So does that mean that those two things that are going to grow even without lots of money and, and Siemens and, and, you know, the, the offshore stuff and BP, that's a whole separate thing, which I completely agree, paying a lot of money for that stuff. But in the U.S., like, and for the Western countries, maybe Europe keeps buying those from China, but are other people going to start making them? Are we going to start getting solar panels at a scale from, you know, from places um, outside of China to really ramp that up? Because I don't see the, the only way they can, China can keep the cost low, by the way, is to keep the labor, uh, not paying that labor because the costs are going up. And there is a reason why the costs have been low for wind and solar out of China. And it's because they aren't paying for the labor. So this is just a reality that I feel like nobody talks about. And it drives me batty when it's uh, basically two simple things. It's wind and solar. That's how you're going to decarbonize the grid. You're okay buying it from China from forced labor. I'm not okay with that. But I do think it's, I can't be the only one not okay with that. It, you, when push comes to shove, I just feel like if we're going to really put a bunch of windmills everywhere around um, the country, which I'm not sure everyone's going to want that either, and, and not I'm not sure anyone's going to want to build all those transmission lines either with the NIMBYism, but do those get purchased elsewhere or is this, uh, hey, we'll just keep buying it and it's probably going to happen anyways because that's the momentum? Yeah, the the paper that you referenced, the Inconvenient Truths, and, and let me give credit where credit's due, that was written by... Um, our, our colleagues at, at the Sailing Stone uh, Capital Group, they're a part of Pickering Energy and they're super deep thinkers on this sort of stuff. I mean, Inconvenient Truth was all about the logistics bottlenecks that people are probably not as aware of as they should be. And whether it's, it's where, where wind and solar equipment gets manufactured or the minerals that we need to expand the electric vehicle uh, fleet, all of these things, I think you're going to see a massive expansion of the whole supply chain, whether it's wind and solar, EVs or batteries, and the stuff doesn't happen fast. It's going to happen globally. I think you will see a, 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 a geographic dispersion of the industry over time because everybody's going to be trying to ramp this stuff up. It, 
if they're going to stick to these net zero goals, which I see no reason why people are going to back off of them in the near term, near term meaning next five years at least. So, um, Tricia, I think you're going to see a much bigger sort of supply chain network for everything. Uh, and but l- let me be clear, I'm I think that it's going to cost more and take longer than people expect. And so by definition, that makes it less attractive. I mean, consensus thinks it's easier and cheaper and faster than it really is. And so the ultimate cost of decarbonization is much higher than people realize. And and it's already again, really, really high. Well, it, it, but part of, the, part of the argument, like hydrogen, for instance, is if you get it started and you start you know, government subsidizes at the beginning, you come down a cost curve and all of a sudden this great, you know, low carbon energy source is available. Um, Maybe that's true, but man, it's a lot of money and it takes time. And I just keep coming back to those issues. It takes money and time. And Europe showed us what happens if you go too fast. And so doesn't mean we won't try to go fast or other countries won't try to go fast, but Ultimately, I think the big beneficiaries of the shale boom have been consumers. And, yes. and I think that the, the whole decarbonization process, it's not clear to me that the winners of that process are going to be the consumer. We'll have less carbon. The government may have spent is a it, bunch of that wait, money. But... Is, it cl- is it clear that we'll have less carbon? Because I, I have a I got to push back on that a little bit. And that's that, you know, we all talk about this. We're decarbonizing. Well, clearly right now, the big, fast push that's happened in Europe has resulted in them burning oil in their power plants um, and burning coal like crazy. Uh-huh. So also when you're go when you go fast and crazy, you spend a lot of money and pe- some people make a lot of money. And I would I, I think that, you know, lots of people in the green tech space ha- are making lots of money hand over fist. Um, if you're putting a shovel into the ground. Um, and I say shovel, meaning a backhoe that's a caterpillar, it's probably powered by diesel um, and it's going to emit. So if you really do have an infrastructure boom and you are building transmission lines and you're digging dirt out of the ground, it's not plugged in with a Tesla. Um, this stuff is going to actually increase emissions just to build it. And so I, I think even the fast, what makes me nervous in Europe is that they haven't, we haven't heard a, a reckoning, a come to Jesus moment, a, a real, a and when Fatih Barol gets on TV and he's saying this is not about the en- this energy crisis is not about green or clean tech this is 100% fossil fuel driven it scares the crap out of me that the people leading in Europe have no um aren't aren't even willing to admit that um wind and not just wind it, it wasn't wind's fault that this happened it was that they didn't have enough natural gas backup and that they also had um hydro nobody's talking about the role of hydro here it, that weather patterns did change and you had a hot summer and the hydro didn't go, you didn't have as much hydropower in Brazil. You didn't have as much hydropower in Europe and you didn't have as much hydropower in China. And that all threw down on other sources of energy, including wind, which didn't blow as much, including solar um, inclu- and, and gas and all these, you know, base loads that nobody talks about of the base load. And so the speed in Europe one, no one say, I've not heard anyone get on TV and, and out of Europe and say, this is really serious. Maybe we should slow this down. And two, 
how much carbon are we emitting by running this so fast? So gets to me this question, and I had Chris Wright on the podcast, and when you know we asked the question point blank, is it about CO2 emissions? You know, he would say 100% it's not. And I really think it's an important question to ask industry leaders. Do we understand, are we actually decreasing the carbon emissions? And if we're not, then what is the point? Um, because it, then it's just a bunch of money moving around and it's about politics. And I also get nervous in the U.S., uh, I don't know so much for Europe because they definitely believe in it. Uh, in the U.S., when you raise prices like this and you raise it to the consumer, I'm going to bet you that politically, um, I think we already saw it in early November and Tuesday. And the reason I bring up politics, it is heavily entwined in in, in risk analysis for businesses. But I think um, with inflation and high energy prices, um, if the consumer doesn't feel good, I don't care how much they want to green and, and get get green. Um, they need they need to feel comfortable enough um, to vote those people in. And I think that in, in the U.S., we've sort of had a very rapid rapid move um, on, on this progressive agenda. And I'm not sure it's being swallowed the way people thought it would. And so I'm nervous that it, I think in the U.S. for sure, there could be a check on decarbonizing pretty quickly, given so much has been done via executive order. In Europe, I think it's a little bit different. But I really have to ask you the question is, all this being said, are we actually decarbonizing? And if we're not, then I, I mean, that's a, especially for investors, it's a really important thing to think about. Yeah. Well, I think, um, so the simple answer would be if, if building the new stuff has a surge in emissions, but you cut emissions over time, then the net impact is is a positive. Are we really decarbonizing? I think that I believe that the money that will will be spent over the next ten years will wind up lowering net carbon. Uh, how much? I don't know. I'm very skeptical of a, a 2050 net zero being able to accomplish that on a global scale because we're already way behind and I mean, the, the magnitude of changes are dramatic. So the answer is, I think these things will lower carbon. Does it lower it immediately? Probably not. But I mean, you got to get started on this stuff if that's your goal, right? What we're not, we can have a whole nother podcast on climate change and how real and human, human causes of, of temperature change and all that sort of stuff. Um, which is, which is really not. And that, and I, I, I just want to say, I fully, it's not to be debated on this, you know, in this episode of this podcast is, and I fully respect people's vantage point there, but from a purely investment standpoint and the risks I, I think are quite big because, you know, are we, you know, if, if we aren't actually decarbonizing and it doesn't, or, or, and, or if the weather doesn't change quickly, political politicians have, have pushed a lot of this stuff and helped incentivize a lot of these investments and have helped stimulate these investments and helped endorse them and give them, them the tailwinds and also are subsidizing them. And if the political environment shifts because the economy erodes and, you know, these dollar signs, if you look at the IA report, holy crap, we're talking yeah. trillions and trillions for this stuff. So I just don't think the consumer is going to put up with it forever when one, they don't see the weather change and two, CO2 emissions keep rising. And so I, I truthfully um, am not nearly as optimistic. And I think, you know, you may be very right. The people are going to kill, keep putting money into it. I think there's a breaking point in which people keep putting money into it because I don't think um, it go. I, I think that it starts to break down. And that's not because you couldn't do this. If you had 
smart, intelligent people doing this with hydrocarbons in mind and saying, how could we actually transition? The problem is we're not actually transitioning. Like you said, when it's about speed, it's just they want it tomorrow. And that's politically driven and it's not reality driven and it breaks down and it falls apart and it's killing their objectives. And that's where you start kind of bucketing who's in favor of the money, who's in favor of the emissions, who's actually in favor of the real thing. And and the reality is and and oil and gas guys get, you know, completely thrown under the bus, told that we're, you know, we're we're illegally we're screwing consumers over because we're I mean, we are not causing oil prices to go up, which, you know, actually the the secretary of energy actually said that, you know, that's OPEC. OPEC controls the gas market, according to her, um, which we were talking about oil, but that's a whole nother thing. So, I mean, you just have a lot of things all over the map. And the oil th- piece makes me nervous because, you know, you mentioned that we're still going to need it and it's going to be tight. Nobody's acknowledged, at least in this interim period of, you know, can we work with the bad guys? You know, we would have to have this to actually work. They would have to acknowledge that hydrocarbons are a piece of this. Um, and, you know, I do, I, I've said on previous podcasts, I'm over saying fossil fuels because I just think it's demeaning and damaging to the industry. It's like calling tobacco. It is hydrocarbons. This is oil, natural gas, and coal. And, you know, these things are, even if you look at IEA, the coal flatlines, coal, coal doesn't even tank off a cliff for demand, you know, and I, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to tank, um, whether you want it to or not, to tank oil demand off the cliff. But the reality is from an investment standpoint, it's going to be very, very difficult for, for oil and gas because they have to navigate through all of this, all of these pressures, you know, that you've explained really clearly. And um, I'm, I'm concerned that, uh, is there any of that that gives you hope that one, you can sort of, they can, they're, it, there's an interest to work with the bad guys that this can be navigated and there's a way to sort of move forward or, you know, are my concerns that the break, this can, stuff can break down because just beating it up so fast could actually damage it for damage your thesis on the green side. And I know I threw a lot at you. Yeah. I, I'm, I think that, so the good news here for the oil and gas business is that we're going to need their product for a long period of time. And it's probably going to have a, an underlying bid that's better than it looked five years ago from a price perspective. So we've traded long, we've traded duration for price. You know, we used to think we'll drive oil and gas, you know, gasoline powered cars forever. <clears throat> we probably won't. So price is probably going to be higher as a result of, of that. But um, <clears throat> to your point about being the bad guys, I'm, I'm on record as saying, I think we're, I think that the industry needs to get used to being the bad guy uh, because I think that battle or war has been lost. And the view is going to be that, I mean, try going to college and recruiting somebody to come work for an oil company or an oil focused investment bank. It's hard, right? So a lot of folks just don't want to do it. Um, so I think we wind up having this this period of time where we're not particularly well loved as an industry. We make we make really good money, and we're always looking over our shoulder for the next regulatory bullet that you know somebody's going to fire at us. And and I think that's just the reality. I, I think that and you are making a great case to just everyone go private. I mean, there's really no point in being public, which it's, I've thought for a long time. I mean, right now there's no point in public. But see, to me, that's not, I, I mean, you accepting being the bad guys. And I get like, look, I'm, I've not been nearly as defensive about, I grew up in the oil and gas industry and, and I, you know, you need to call spade a spade. And when things are done wrong, they're done wrong. Colorado, 
Firestone explosion, Anadargo, really big deal, was absolutely done wrong. Industry has done a poor job historically of, of getting ahead of problems, of being honest about those problems, of being and addressing them. But now, now's the time where the industry, I think, really, you got to have some some industry leaders that really uh, actually go against, I think, that. of I, I don't accept that, you know, we have, they have to get on their earnings call and say they're the bad guys. Because, you know, they're, I, I think we're getting to a point where they're almost lying to their shareholders. When when you have Mike Worth, the CEO, at the beginning of this year, telling his, his shareholders, you know, in his investor day, that he is going to be producing, you know, that he is very bullish on, on oil and gas, and he believes that oil and gas is the demand is there for long time and then he has a board meeting shakeout in may and then he changes his tone a little bit and changes even his wording on the longevity of oil and gas i mean i'm a little concerned that's not quite uh you know i don't i guess it's not lying but it's not i mean did he really change his mind does he believe that i mean that's investor internal investor pressure and that doesn't seem really kosher to me um so i think you start getting into where it it's getting really messy and i i mean not every industry leader i think should accept that that this is a maybe from a, from a making money investment standpoint and getting through it you're right that you have to accept that you're just the bad guys but i think that man from a tech standpoint this industry has a lot left to give um in terms of you know has a lot it's a it's a pretty exciting business has a lot to give i mean and a lot of people and just nerding out on the rock standpoint and i, I do think that uh we have more oil and gas in the globe let alone in the U.S. than people realize. Um, and the U.S. is probably, you know, even now, part of the part of what is driving oil prices down a little bit, not all of it, just but a fraction of it is definitely people thinking that, you know, the Permian is going back to 5 million barrels per day, that we're getting close to it already. We're going back to pre-COVID levels on the Permian and just that there's people are pushing up on oil and gas. And, you know, we're doing that all with way less rigs, way less everything. So there's just a reality that I, oil production tends over my lifetime, over my career, ten, 10 years has been uh, way more resilient than people realize. Oil production always tends to go to the upside, not the downside. And I think that lower oil prices are way better to the consumer. And I think if you want to be the good guys, you should favor a little lower oil prices. So personally, I think lower prices benefit the economy a lot. And these these high prices aren't aren't great for a lot of folks. But is, do we really have to accept that being the bad guys thesis to, to sort of just survive and live through it? Or, or can, like, that seems, I mean, I hate to be, that seems pretty crappy. Well, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that um, my personal belief is that there's, I mean, we know that hydrocarbons make the world a better place from a, from a, the, the energy density associated with hydrocarbons makes um, quality of living tons better and, and you you know the classic example for the for the person saying give hydrocarbons credit are the you know the guy who's burning wood or burning dung and he gets a, a natural gas uh, power you know either in his home or for cooking or whatever their life's better no question um so i hear you and that doesn't matter to greta thunberg Greta Thunberg says, we got to get hydrocarbons out of here. And so all I'm really trying to say is that, that um, notwithstanding all the positives and notwithstanding that most people are still driving around using hydrocarbons or heating their houses using hydrocarbons or turning on electricity using hydrocarbons, um, the, 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 the press is on. I, maybe this is a better way to describe it. Um, if we were in the 
if we were in the sealing business, right? S-E-A-L, you know, what, what did those guys do? They went to the Arctic and they clubbed baby seals and brought their fur home. And that was awful. And people said, this must stop. And let's say that 90% of that went away. The people that are saying this must stop aren't going to go, fabulous, it's 90% better. They're going to say 10% of seals are still being clubbed. And I think that's where we're at now, which is, I think they're, the whole industry gets it. They're acting more responsibly. Emissions are coming down. They're focused on GHG. I talk to all kinds of executives all the time, mm-hmm. you know, these, these meetings, and they're spending money and really focused on doing better. And Greta Thunberg is still after their ass. Sorry to the kids who listen to your podcast. So um, I, that's yeah. what I mean when I say you got You're going to be the bad guy for a while. People are spending money. They're doing tons better, and I'm not sure they're going to get the credit they deserve for it. And and you just you shouldn't. It's a cost to doing business now, and you shouldn't expect to be praised because. I and I, I agree I with that. You're will. not gonna you're gonna expect to be praised. I don't. I don't. You know. I've don't have all, I mean, I respect Greta for what, uh, you know, her values and beliefs and that she, she goes out and does it. Um, but I, you know, she doesn't have a PhD and she's not an economist and she's not an expert or scientist. Um, she's actually, so I, you know, she doesn't have anything other than she says, blah, 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 a lot, a lot now, which is, um, you know, there's not much there. So it's a lot of blah, blah, blah. Um, ESG though. So that being all said, the, the, you're basically saying these these operators are going to have to navigate this. I, I do think there's a convincing argument to stay private or actually to go private, mm-hmm. given all this. And and I don't think you know the 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 Greta you know she's made it onto you know Marvel shows at least her voice and stuff has been onto. So you have that, but you also have the media one hundred you know in the pocket of of you know a very biased sort of media that that's uh, leaning in to the the scare tactics of you know every weather event being you know catastrophic and being caused by the oil and gas industry and and all these things and um i, I think that that's a, that's a reality from an investment standpoint of of analyzing risk it's like okay well where's the media where's and where's the political and i do think the politics side matters a lot that uh in the us if this you know midterms don't go the way Democrats want them to go, um, and if uh, and if it, that switches, and then in three years, if if the White House is not um, is not a Democratic White House, I'm not sure this looks the same in the U.S. I mean, I we didn't have the we didn't even talk about inflation and progressive and 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 uh, we didn't talk about inflation the way we talked about it, it last year at this time. We didn't talk about um, entitlement packages. We didn't talk about um, the social welfare spending, and we certainly didn't talk about the green stuff. This all changed within a year. So if it can change that quickly, I think it can change back. And the U.S. has a you know I mean that was all that was talked about was that we weren't part of the Paris Climate Accords and now we're part of the Paris Climate Accords. And this is just, and by the way, that didn't even go that well at COP26. It was pretty watered down by India and, and China actually toward the end. And I mean, it's a it's a hard reality that I think that, I, I think if I was, you know, if I'm, and I do, I'm not advising people on, on you know, individual stocks to invest in, but I mean, I, I was listening to a podcast with Oxford Institute of Energy Studies on India. And, you know, there's a lot of optimism by some folks in the natural gas community on India. Some of them that's not, you know, they lack the infrastructure. It's a very messy system. They still have a lot of coal. Um, and and then they're trying to go to renewables. Really, really messy. But they, uh, 
they still, they need it. Right. And, and to your point of like the people in their houses, like they're trying to get people to stop using wood. So they're bringing in an LPG. And so there's a, a, a potential like, growth there for just that standpoint. And so you have these places within Asia where you know that actually to decarbonize, they're going to have to have, you know, they may want the, to be renewable tomorrow, or actually I think the developed world wants them to want to be renewable tomorrow, but the reality is to actually do it. They're going to need natural gas, not just because for decarbonizing, but literally just to elevate their economies. And in, in, it's going to actually decarbonize. And so that's going to happen. The tricky part is, is how does that actually work out in the wash with, you know, companies like Chenier and Tellurian and, you know, in the U.S. and, and actually getting things permitted and how much we export is, it all comes back to how people actually spend money in doing business. And I think there's a good thesis to be said, like you said, that hydrocarbons are going to be in the pool for a long time. The ability to invest in them is going to be hard and you're going to have to find unique pathways, you know, and different. And I, I, and I think the political environments are going to have to be navigated because they bias investors, especially now when you have the secretary that, you know, I mean, Janet Yellen, who is a political appointee and talking about climate change. And even there was a post on, you know, on, on Jerome Powell, how many times he said climate change. The fact that you have these bodies that are talking about climate change that impact how people invest their money, that's important. Um, and that means that the role of ESG, and this is kind of whatever you scribbled on, I'd love for you to you know, follow up and, and make sure you interrupt me on. But the last thing I guess I'd like to close with, because I am... I'm still struggling with, um, you know, how real is ESG? I, I know it's real and I know people invest in it, but the impact it's having, um, when we talk about just investor pressure, I think that investor pressure changes. I think it's fluid. And I think a lot of folks are viewing the right now of, of ESG and the momentum it has and the investor pressure on 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 hydrocarbons, on on oil and gas equities, I mean, you name it, uh, on every company. Um, and and it, actually, it's on insurance companies now that, that insure coal mines and everything. All of this is weighing, but I think it, it could be a little transitory in nature. And I would like to know how you think about that, how, and maybe you personally, but also Pickering Energy Partners, of that we tend to view, like, did we view that when, when people were talking about downspacing with wells and the analysts freaked out in New York and they were like, oh my gosh, the Permian's over and the U.S. oil boom is over because we put the wells too close together and it's over. And oh, by the way, it wasn't over. And they, they widened it up a smidgen and got it, your, the monkey off their back and it's fine. And per, production is going back up. That same thing, you know, 2015, 2016, you had to buy in the Permian. You had to, no matter what, you had to get out of the DJ. You had to buy into the Permian. You had to get into the Permian, anything. You have now continental resources in the Permian basin. I mean, but at that time it was, doesn't, it didn't matter that you were making money. It would just get into the Permian. And then immediately it was be free cash flow positive. And now it's be free cash flow positive. Now it's give every penny you make back to shareholders. Now it's variable dividends and, and, um, and real dividends and, and stock buybacks. And I'm not sure that's a great one, but, um, and, and it's, uh, you know, but don't have, and I mean, all these things change. And before it was, well, I mean, if prices go down 20 bucks, it's going to be like, well, how come you weren't hedged? Well, you didn't tell me to hedge. I mean, so this, you know, this, this listening to these investors and this pressure, I think it's really scary a little bit in terms of how much eventually you have to, whether you're an oil and gas company or just any company, you still have to run your company. I mean, your investors, yes, they matter. You got to give returns, but they can't dictate every move. You run a business and you've got to run it. And I think in the oil and gas space, I'm not sure if they got a little lost, but I'd love to know if you can just give me, nobody has given me an articulation of do you, how they feel about this transitory nature of investor pressure. And I think it's important to talk to folks about it because it's just, there's no way it can be exactly like it is today forever. I mean, it's just going to continue to evolve, right? <sighs> or maybe not, maybe not. Right. No, no, no. Energy is a cyclical business. And um, 
So if we think about the kinds of investors that owned energy last year, they were bottom dwelling, value focused, NAV, um, this business isn't going away. <clears throat> I don't mind to own it for five years until it gets better kind of investors. Those people, <clears throat> those shareholders want different things than growth oriented shareholders that tend to own the sector when commodity prices are higher. Commodity prices are typically higher, sending a price signal to grow you know, production, which means you're talking growth companies and growth Growth investors want 25% production growth and they reward you for taking action that can get you on that path, a la get in the Permian at any cost. So because we're a cyclical business, by definition, sort of the investor base does change. And now we have the added wrinkle of, of ESG, which is, which is changing the playing field a bit. You know, there's a, a reasonable amount of money, a lot of incremental money that's come in around uh, these characteristics. And it, so it's changed the bar for the whole market. It's a tougher bar to hurdle as an energy company because the E piece is more challenging. I think I think that what we've seen is that... So that, is the S and the G. We just keep focusing on the E. Um, well... There's the G piece, the, the governance of an oil and gas company shouldn't be any more difficult than governance of a manufacturing company or a tech company or whatever. Um, the, the social piece of it, in theory, a, a good social operator or a good governance, that should be ubiquitous across all sectors. The E piece is a little harder because everybody does things, you know, they have different businesses that impact the environment piece of it differently. Um, so I think the bar is higher than, than it was two years ago. I think it'll be probably even higher over the next two. I think there's some momentum to the ESG dynamic that hasn't completely played out yet. Um, what's the result? The result is if you are a public company, I mean, boards are under scrutiny around this. And so what do they do? They ask the companies, what are you doing on this? There's a lot of money being spent on ESG. You know, whether or not the pressures will be as dramatic in two or three years, this is making companies better, in my opinion, right? Not necessarily more profitable, but it's making them better. So emissions are down and, um, and, you know, the, the stuff that we care about from an E perspective is getting more attention. Are, are they the right things? I mean, one, one thing that I'll call attention to is that um, these rating agencies that rate ESG, um, they're, they're very mechanical and algorithm driven. They're, they're unwilling to standardize because that takes away their proprietary stuff. And so, you've wound up with a very disparate set of ESG criteria and, and we haven't standardized very well in the US, but I think it's it's coming. I also think, Tricia, that that ESG disclosure is requirements are coming. And so uh, I think that I think that the game is getting tougher. Table stakes are getting tougher. Now it it also says that it's another reason why being a private company, so you can do whatever the hell you want within reason, 
and not be pushed around by investors or banks or whatever. Uh, so I think there there will be more companies that decide to stay private versus going public because the cost. But you, being re- a you really think that that I, I can't help but ask this because I please I don't believe that the I think e, the E has been elevated way more than the S and the G. I think actually the S and the G have fallen completely by the wayside because. Oh, oh, oh I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I apologize. No, I mean there's ten times more focus on E than S and G. That's for sure. Well, and that's the problem is that I I don't know if you can. Um, I'm not, I'm just not sure you can have, uh, when, when you elevate the E, so when you elevate the environmental issues, you can actually exacerbate the social and governance issues. And it's like a whack-a-mole thing a little bit, but, and this is where I think the China thing comes back. And this is, um, there is a, a very good episode from the South China Morning Post on China geopolitics that I can't, I think it came out in like December. I was driving, or not December, sorry, it was over the summer. I was driving home um, to Craig, Colorado, and I was listening to it. Um, and this guy, and had nothing to do, they didn't, they had nothing to do with the stuff that I had connected it to with, but it was, uh, which was the Exxon stuff that I was interested in because I just heard those names, but it was BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. And um, this guy in the podcast was just pulling up that they had all had, and by the way, BlackRock, you can Google them and you can, we all know the names, but you can Google them and they have a nice uh, ESG talk. They have actually a nice social thing. They've got a whole slide on human capital and their social and governance stuff. They're all complicit in in like human rights issues within um, the province of Xinjiang. They have like board members. They've actually a part of the decision makings in some of these bodies. So they're um, in the interworkings of this stuff. So I would say that I call BS on the S and the G part there. And those were the three names that apparently were the big push and driver in getting, you know, Exxon to, you know, get those board members from um, engine number one. And that to me is where I do think it's green. It's it just there's too much BS going on that it's what is it really about? And it, that to me is I don't think it's any benefit to the company. Um, and it makes me nervous that people are so buying it beyond nervous. People are buying into this. I mean, this uh, engine number one raised a green fund on the back of all that publicity from that. That's uh-huh. just about money. So if you're anti-corporate America, anti-money, I mean, talking Greta Thunberg doesn't, you know, doesn't believe in the economic growth. That's what this is, people. People are making a crap ton of money on this stuff. So it's no different to me than, well, I guess, but you got to call it what it is. I mean, this is just a green fund. That was a publicity stunt. And what did it actually accomplish? And by the way, I mean, they're going to lose money. 10% of CapEx going on for Exxon going to all this stuff is not going to help them make money. It's probably going to help them lose money, but it just means that that I, I think it's you got to be careful because I think that E gets elevated, the S and the G doesn't, and then yes, you're right, you're probably right. I mean, on paper they've lowered emissions, but we do know that in the U.S. all if we take all of U.S. oil and gas production, all of their emissions in the U.S. it is one percent of CO2 emissions. So we could get every single company to get their emissions zero. Now methane is a different story, and I agree that's a whole different that's a different ball of wax, um, and and is not addressed the same. But if we took it down to zero, it would be one percent. And so I just think if we're it's really about emissions, we got to start focusing on what we're actually trying to tackle. And I think that oil and gas companies are highly penalized for their emit they're trying really hard to solve for their emissions which is a drop in the bucket to the actual emissions and they're hated anyway so really it's like okay go after you know they're hated anyway and i i that's my concern is they're going to go chase this esg stuff all they want and they're going to chase and chase and chase and they're going to do what the investors tell them and the share price isn't going to move and it's not going to move the needle for them the question is do they get into some nice long only basket and do they get do they 
do enough that they stay there. And I know this is all reality and I don't see, you know, I, I tend to push back on folks that in your community that know it better than I do, but it just doesn't seem like it's like that they're working really, really hard to move the needle on something. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't work on ESG and, and you shouldn't have, you know, work on a diverse board member and stuff like that. It just means, are you really moving the needle? Um, are you really moving the needle? is is one question and then the other question is if you're not moving the needle or if you're not taking these steps are you going backwards and i think that the risk the risk to the energy sector and, and i apologize just to clarify what i meant was i think that that relative to the other industries the e piece of esg gets a lot more attention in oil and gas than it does you know in in other other areas, but um, but I think the the real challenge is if you don't make some of these changes, one your peers and competitors are, and two there's an expectation that you do make the change, and so if you don't, you may wind up. It's not the it's not where you get included; it's where you get excluded. If you wind up on a list that somebody's not going to invest over time, you are disadvantaged versus your peer group. So, so it's about getting on the right, it's about getting in those buckets and those lists and, but then you, somebody's creating those too, right? So it's gotta be, um, someone's creating those lists and I'm not sure that's a level playing field if we don't have this all mapped out. The lists, you know? the list makers and the raters are not great. And, um, and there's some gamesmanship there for sure. And so it's <clears throat> the, I think over the next five years, there will be a lot more clarity on what the requirements are and should be. And then there will be less gamesmanship and more reality to all of it. Um, but in the meantime, there's a fair number of bouncing around in the dark, which I agree isn't necessarily a money-making proposition. And that means we just could be, in, especially with the stuff I was saying to about the, the short-term political environment nature and the, I mean, seems that in the next few years, it could be a little bit in flux in the U.S. Could be. Could be. All right. Well, with that, Dan, I have. Um, I'm sure we could easily keep talking, and I've. I've. I've <laughs> we, great... could, we, we could just. We could go for another two hours. It, well, and they're they're really good. To, I mean, these are topics that keep going. So, one, I will absolutely have you back on the podcast, and we will continue Thanks, this discussion, um, especially talking more econ and, and different things. Um, so, I thank you a ton for for joining me. It's been an hour and seventeen minutes of nerding out on all these things. So, appreciate your time. Appreciate actually, really appreciate the disagreements and the uh, you willing to to hear me out and push back a little bit. So that's great. I think it's awesome for the listeners and um, just want to thank you again. Trisha, thanks for having me on. I look forward to coming back. Awesome. Okay. Bye. Bye.